He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him, in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we come before you this morning, we are conscious of all that we are, and all that we are, Father, is undeserving of the least of your mercies. And yet, all that Christ is has been imputed and credited to us by faith. We are full of faults and full of sin, but he is full of mercy and righteousness. And we who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are covered and washed and sanctified and made your own. Father, we are therefore able to come not as those alienated from you, but those who have been brought nigh by the precious blood of Jesus. It is by his blood and his blood alone that we are able to call you our Father, that we are able to anticipate that you will pour out your Spirit in his rich influences upon our minds and our hearts. And Lord God, will you please do that? Will you please stir us? Will you please quicken us? Will you please give us receptiveness in our own hearts and minds for the truth concerning Christ? Will you please do what man cannot do? And that is cause Christ to be exalted and lifted up before our eyes and before our whole consciousness. Father, will you do what only you can do and enable me to speak clearly? Father, will you do what you alone can do and sanctify your people by your truth? Will you do what you alone can do by your Holy Spirit? And that is bringing those who are dead and darkened in their sins to life and illumination by your grace. Lord God, will you quicken unto life this morning, not only those who are spiritually dead, but those who are spiritually dull. Will you strengthen us, Lord God? Will you set us again upon him who is the foundation and rock of all our hope, who is our Redeemer, who is the lover of our souls. Father, we ask to do your uncommon work. For we have come to worship an uncommon God, as a people blessed with uncommon privileges and blessings, and a people anticipating an uncommon promise. Father, we give us ears to hear, and me a mouth to speak. Will you do your precious and great work in our midst? In Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen. Christ once asked his disciples in Caesarea, Who do you say that I am? It was a kind of Galilean Gallup poll. And he received, you know, an assortment of answers. 50% say John the Baptist. 25% say Elijah. 15% say one of the prophets, maybe Jeremiah. And 10% are undecided. But Jesus put the question to them, Who do you say that I am? It was the most important question, and it always remains the most important question. Everybody on this planet has either one or another problem with Jesus. Some doubt his supremacy. Others doubt his sufficiency. Those who doubt his supremacy are normally non-Christians. They may be atheistic. They may be religious. They may be members of another religion. But they doubt what Paul claims here about Christ's supremacy. They may honor him as a great teacher or prophet, but they do not believe he is Lord of all. Others, perhaps within the church, 
may acknowledge Christ's supremacy, but they question whether he is sufficient. They try to supplement Christ in their Christian experience. They start with him, but then they move on to other things. Sometimes they move to their own works. They think that they can begin with Christ, and yet if they're going to stay on in Christ, stay in fellowship with God, that they must supplement it by earning his favor. Others, times, they think there's some deeper spiritual principle. Sometimes they mix Christianity with other types of belief, maybe a new age teaching or some secular teaching that is on the market. But there are many who doubt the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. They think that in order to have fullness of life, they need to supplement him with something else. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? To be ignorant of who Jesus is is spiritually fatal. If you do not know Jesus Christ, you're utterly, eternally, and presently lost in your sins. To be confused about Jesus Christ, if you have some knowledge about him, is to be crippled. And so the writer to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul, desires to clear up the confusion. And we owe a lot to heretics. Not that they can really give us much to hold on to, anything of ourselves, but heretics often force the issues to be clarified. And the church of Colossae was marked by a heresy. It was a Christological heresy, a heresy that distorted the person and work of Christ. And it brought confusion to those who believed in him. And so Paul writes to clear up the confusion, to take away the ignorance. And he does this in a most wonderful way. It is hard to find a more exalted and significant passage regarding our Lord Jesus Christ than what we find here in verses 15 to 20 of Colossians 1. They hold a universe of truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, and I will not take a universe of time to explain it. Yet here, in condensed prose, is a spiritual hymn for all the ages about the Son of God in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. He is magnificently magnified over creation and over the new creation. Christ is supreme over all. And this text establishes that probably better than any other text in the New Testament. And I want you to notice just something at the very outset. I want you to notice how many times Christ is comprehensively supreme. Notice all the alls and everies. Notice the comprehensive character of Christ and what he has done. And therefore the application at the very outset is if he is comprehensively all of these things, then he is to be comprehensively and completely trusted. Comprehensively and completely loved. And comprehensively and completely obeyed. That is the whole impression of this. This is where we ought to go. Christ is supreme. He has no competitors. And he deserves all of our worship. And I want us to look at this under two larger headings. And then under those headings begin to open up the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, Christ is supreme over the old creation. And then second, Christ is supreme over the new creation. There's a balance in both parts. In verses 15 to 17... He declares that Christ is supreme over the old creation. And then he demonstrates how. In verses 18 through 20, he declares that Christ is supreme over the new creation. And then he demonstrates how. And the implication of Christ as supreme is that he is sufficient. He's sufficient for everything you need for salvation. You don't need to look anywhere else because he is supreme. So first, let's consider his supremacy over creation. Paul declares it, first of all, that Jesus Christ is the perfect revelation of God. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. That is a mighty statement for him 
to make. Because God is a spirit. God is invisible. He is the God who cannot be seen. He is the God who cannot be touched and handled. He is the God who is so great in his purity that no eye can behold him without some kind of mitigation, some kind of mediation. And so full in his essence that no one can really comprehend him as he really is. Indeed, there is no way to see the invisible God except this way. Yet in Christ, God is made visible. He is the image of what can't be seen. If a man would see God, he must see Christ. And what does image denote? Well, image denotes two things, likeness and visibility. He had to be like him to make him visible. You remember the words of Philip who said, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. If we would see God, if we would understand God, if we must know God, then we must see and know and understand Christ. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, The entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. There's no lack in him. We see the fullness of God in him. Even as he takes on our nature, the added nature of humanity, and joins it to his deity, he still shares glory and essence with God the Father, glory and essence with God the Spirit. And yet, in a certain sense, Christ of the three persons of the triune Godhead, is unique. I cannot see the Father. I cannot see the Spirit. But I can behold God in the Son. And there he is made visible to me. The God of the universe who can be seen, recognized, and adored in him. He is like God, and therefore he is unlike any other. There's one that said, God is Christ-like. And that is no blasphemy at all to God. It is all to his honor and glory. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. The Son is to have all the honor as that perfect image bearer of the invisible God. In the Lord Jesus, we are able to see in a far better way than we could ever understand or perceive God himself. So image denotes likeness and image denotes visibility. He makes God visible. And that is a perfect visibility because he is God, this is a glorious and perfect revelation. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 17, that God is eternal, immortal, invisible. And yet now he makes himself visible in Christ. Christ is the supreme revealer of God. If you look at Christ, you're not seeing a lifeless image of the living God. You're seeing a live, perfect, pure, flawless, undistorted image of God. And that is such a blessing. What do you think of God? What do you think of Christ? The scriptures reveal God. God reveals himself as he describes himself in his historical acts and in his historical revelation of his character and nature. The scriptures are the perfect, inerrant word of God, revealing God. But they are not God. Nothing in all the world, nothing in all history manifests to us as clearly what God is like as Christ himself, the Son of God. The writer to the Hebrews makes it even clearer, and I love this statement. He says, God spoke in various times and seasons through the prophets and visions and dreams, but in these last days he has spoken to us, he has opened his mouth and revealed himself to us in his Son. He says the Son is the radiance, he is the outshining of God's glory, and he is the exact expression 
of God's nature. There is no misrepresentation in Christ. There is no distortion in Christ. He is God's best self-expression. Yet how am I to see Christ today? I cannot pilgrimage to Jerusalem because he is not there. He has ascended back to his Father and sat down at his right hand. I must see him in the Scriptures, in the Gospel. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that we see God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ shining forth to us in the Gospel. This is an incredible thing that we see when we look at Christ in the Gospel. Christ is life, eternal life, that can be taken hold of by hands during the time of incarnation. But now that life is looked upon and laid hold of by faith in that Son who is the image of the invisible God. And he is not only that one who is the perfect revelation of God, but he is the sovereign over all creation. Look at that wording that's used next. He is the firstborn over all creation. He is the firstborn. And immediately it might strike our minds when we hear this idea of firstborn of creation that somehow Jesus himself is a created being. But prototokos, this Greek word, while it can have the meaning of a firstborn created being, that is not the meaning here. Don't let it give you the wrong idea, as the Jehovah's Witnesses say. Firstborn over all creation does not mean he is the first created being because Jesus was never created. He has no beginning. He has always existed. He is God. He is eternal. In terms of his humanity, there was a beginning in that supernatural conception in the womb of Mary and in that gestation during those nine months and in that birth and in that life, there was a beginning of his humanity in the Incarnation. But there's never been any beginning of his glorious person. His person has always existed. He has always existed. Notice verse 17. He is before all things. John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him not one thing was created that has been created. All things owe their existence to him. He owes his existence to no one and nothing. And so when Paul says firstborn, what does he mean? It's a word that can mean first in time, but it's a word usually used in the New Testament and the Old to speak about first in rank. It is what the Lord says of Israel in Exodus 4, verse 22. He calls Israel his firstborn. Not that they were the first nation that ever existed, No, but that they were the first nation of his choosing. We find the same kind of wording used in Psalm 89, verse 27, and we get an idea of what firstborn means when the Lord says of his anointed, I will also make him my firstborn, greatest of the kings of the earth. Right? It denotes privilege. It means that he is supreme over all of the creation. Firstborn is a first in rank kind of word. Christ, the first man, the highest ranking man, the firstborn over all creation. Before all things, this one now has the highest rank. He is preeminent. He is prior to all things and over all things. He is creation's Lord. That's what he's saying. What, what, What Jesus himself said in Matthew 28, verse 18, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's what it means. Jesus Lord of the universe. God has appointed him as a sovereign over all. God has put his son in office over everything that exists. He is the one in whose hands are entrusted the outworking 
of the purposes and plans of God. Revelation 5, right? The unrolling of the scroll. It is in the hands of Jesus that the unraveling and unrolling and opening up of history will occur. What's going to happen? I don't know all the things that will happen, but I am sure glad it's in his hands because those hands were pierced for me and it was all for the purpose of carrying out the plan of God. Right, that's the idea here. And he will serve forever in this way. It's not a temporary rule. It's not a four-year term. Nobody gets to elect him in or out. God has put him in from the very beginning. And now he reigns on high. And there ought to be thankfulness on our part and glory to such a one as him. That's the supremacy declared. And now I want you to see what Paul does here. He sets out that glorious identity of Jesus Christ as Lord over creation. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And now he demonstrates that in verses 16 and 17. You see that in that word for. He's going to ground his next statements. And so he's, Paul says he is the agent of all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him. All things are created by him or in him. He is the sphere. He is the one in whom all of God's purposes, his active purposes with regard to the created order, took place in him. He is the mighty agent of creation. He is the creator. He is God the Father's master workman. John wrote, All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Christ is not a figment of human imagination, not a figment of human fiction or legend. No, indeed, humanity itself exists by the fiat and the strength and the power of Christ himself. The whole created order, in time and space, wherever it is, whether it can be seen or not, Jesus Christ is its creator. All things you can see and things that you will never see, things you have no mind of, things you've never contemplated, Anything that exists, anything that has been, owes its identity and existence to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not a being who depends upon the created order, but the very creative order itself depends upon him. Christ is not the product of history. History is the product of Christ. He is the authority over all. The whole universe hangs on the arm of Jesus. There's not a creature in the universe that does not owe its existence to him. There's not a place in the universe where Christ is not sovereign. There is no place that is not his place. There is not a cubic inch of any place that doesn't have the fingerprints of Jesus on it. There's no territory in the universe, seen or unseen, high or low, that does not and is not under the jurisdiction and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He owns the government from the burning seraph closest to the throne of glory to the farthest galaxy that any telescope has ever seen to the deepest depths that can be traced on earth. He owns it. He makes it. It is his. There is nothing that is not under his authority. Nothing can exist apart from Christ. And all that exists, exists because of Christ. But not only is he the mighty agent of creation, but notice at the very end of verse 16, all things have been created by him. And notice how it finishes. And for him. All creation exists for Jesus 
Christ. He makes it. It belongs to him. And it exists and rolls through history for his pleasure, for his purpose, for his glory. It exists for him. Do you know who you were made for? You were made for him. He made you for himself. We were made for him. We exist for him. He is the great goal of creation. Everything has been created for him, for his pleasure, for his honor, for his glory. Christ is the aim. Christ is the goal of our existence. This is why we live, right? We live for him. He is the end for which all exists. This is eventually where Paul will get in Colossians 3, verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is what it means to live, to adopt Paul's motto, to live is Christ. He is the end for which all things exist. Well, now, beloved, what is the implication of that? You belong to him, and you are to live for him. A life that is not lived for him is a life that is absolutely out of sync. A life that is being lived for self and not for his pleasure and his glory is a life that is ultimately out of control. It's in the order that God himself has determined where we find all of our joy. And saints, we know this. When we get out of sync, when we get into the ruts or we get into the habits of going side to side from different things, getting attracted by those things, we're out of sync until we get back to this. He is the very purpose. He is the supreme goal of all creation. Indeed, this is the way that eventually at his feet one day, one day we're all going to be hauled to his feet, either hauled by grace in a glorious and sweet drawing, or we're going to be hauled by an irresistible strong arm, but we're all going to be there at his feet. The whole created order, right? however much it appears in disorder, is all going toward him. All of it will bow to him. All of history will be rolled up and shut up and put under his feet, whether they have submitted to him in a believing faith or whether they are brought to their knees to bow and acknowledge him. And unless you are in line with Christ, unless you are walking with Christ, you are all out of the way if you're not in his way. He will be glorified because this is who he is. This is what everything exists for, for him. The whole world is going away from him in its own will, but the, by the will of him who made it all, it will come back to him, it will bow to him, and everything will come under him again. Now notice, not only is he the mighty agent of creation, not only is he the great goal of all creation, he is also the active sustainer of all creation. Verse 17, he is before all things. Right? He has a pre-existence to anything that has ever existed, he is self-existent. He is before history. But notice what it says. And by him, all things hold together. The writer to the Hebrews says the same thing in Hebrews chapter 1. He says, he upholds all things by the word of his power. You know what keeps everything together? You know what keeps this universe together? You know what keeps your life together? What keeps your mind together? There's only one person who keeps it all together, and that is the Lord Jesus. He holds it all. Everything is sustained by him. Not only is he the maker of all things, the goal of all things, he is the sustainer of all things. And that's a very sobering thing, isn't it? If the sun should stop shining... We won't have to worry about global warming anymore. We will worry about an instant global freezing. I don't know how long this planet could exist if the sun 
went out. But I will tell you this, if you, for one moment, were out of the mind of Christ, you would be instantly gone. Every single soul exists and is preserved by the good pleasure and will of Christ. It's not a trivial thing, you see. It's not a trivial matter that you are submitting to Christ in faith or going your own way in unbelief. To be an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not a trivial thing to be indifferent to the one who made you and the one who mercifully sustains you. It is by his pleasure and will alone that you live and are here today. Anything that has existence owes its existence to him. He is before all things. History is going to him at the very end. He's at the end of all things. He bookends reality, and in between, he holds all things together. Christ is the cosmic glue of all that exists. He is the ultimate life giver and life sustainer. He's absolutely indispensable. He is, as the hymn says, the sure answer to our every quest. To whom do I owe my life? I owe it to him because he made me. To whom will I live my life? I will live for him and for his glory. How will I live my life? I will live day by day by his sustaining power. Beloved, it was the will of Christ that held and sustained the cross itself. It was not the nails that kept the Son of God on that tree. His love for sinners held him to the tree. It was his will to shed his blood for us unworthy sinners. It was his will to do the will of his Father that caused him to cling to the cross for our sakes. And dear saints, clinging to him, we have life eternal. Octavius Winslow wrote, Little did they dream as they bound the fatal wood upon his shoulder, by whose power that tree was made to grow, and from whom the beings who bore him to the death drew their existence. So completely was Jesus bent upon saving sinners by the sacrifice of himself, he created the tree upon which he was to die and nurtured from infancy the men who were to nail him to the accursed wood. Oh, the depth of Jesus' love to sinners. Jesus Christ, having paid the greatest price ever and done the greatest work that has ever been done, right? the cross and the resurrection are the pinnacle of the work of Christ that fulfills all of the purposes of God. Having accomplished this work, Jesus doesn't go up to heaven and put his feet on the desk, put his hands behind his head and be done. No, Jesus is the active sustainer of creation. It goes and it continues to go because the creator who gave it existence is sustaining it. Every twinkling of an eye, every beat of a heart, every impulse of a nerve is dependent upon Christ's pleasure and will. And isn't it a crazy thing how lightly we regard this one where indeed every breath ought to be given for him, every nerve ending in thought ought to be devoted to him as much as possible. He's absolutely indispensable. We are absolutely dependent upon him to sustain us. How is it that we think that somehow we go on this Christian life in our own strength? There's no way we can go on in our own strength. He is the sustainer of everything. And that's why he's also ultimately exclusive. Right? There is no other prototokos, no other firstborn, no other supreme one. There is not a shelf upon which Jesus Christ is to be deposited, to be forgotten. He is the one above all. Jesus Christ is the only rock, the only anchor, the only stability, the only life, the only ground of existence. The will of Christ sustains the universe, so you ignore Jesus at your own peril. It is the most foolish thing in the world to ignore and to be indifferent 
to Jesus Christ. It's not trivial. This is the greatest consequence, whether you are submitted to Jesus in an obedient faith or whether you're going your own way in unbelief. Because the fact is, nobody ends up their own way. They end up his way. So he is the one we can't miss. He is the one we must embrace. Take refuge in him. We'll look in the second place. Christ is supreme over the new creation. There isn't anything in the old order of things that is not under that great and glorious Christ, but then he moves from the old order to the new. He changes now, but then he adopts the same manner, the same form that he used in verses 15 through 17. Right, verse 15, he said, here's the declaration, and then he gave the demonstration. And so it is here as well, in verses 18 through 20. Declaration, then demonstration. So how are we to think of Christ? What is the church to think of Jesus Christ? Well, first, he is the reigning head of the church. Verse 18, he is also the head of the body, the church. Jesus Christ is the supreme sovereign, not only over creation, but especially as that living and loving head of his body, the church. Sometimes people ask me, are you the senior pastor of this church? I say, no, I'm not. Christ is the senior pastor. Jesus rules the church. He's not the founder of a new religion. He is the founder of a new humanity. This is the whole difference of Christianity, right? It's not adding some more thought forms to our culture. It's not adding some more habits of behavior. It is redeeming a people to inhabit a new order. And we are spiritually united to Christ, our head. The church is his body, that company of people that have been washed by the blood of Christ, garmented in the righteousness of Christ. He is the head of those people. He is that vital organic head who is the sovereign, who is the source of life. He is the one who this body, this new body, depends upon entirely. Christ is the life of the church. He is the church's Lord. And what that means simply, dear saints, is this. Christ is not some kind of symbolic figurehead in the church. right? No, he is its Lord. He is the one to whom the church is to look in terms of its ministry, its service, and its life. All is to be done according to his will. But not only is he the reigning head of the church, he is the risen founder of the new creation. Verse 18, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is the originator of the new creation. He is that glorious Adam, that new Adam, that second and last Adam a new beginning. The future, in a sense, has come to visit us with the beginning of Jesus Christ. Notice he uses that word again, firstborn. It doesn't mean he was the first one to be raised from the dead. Others were raised before him, weren't they? The son of the widow of Nain, Lazarus, Jairus's daughter. Christ raised a lot, but not all of them were raised to endless life, right? They all died again. Christ is the first to rise where death has no hold. But no one did what he did when he died, when he broke the bonds of death, never to die again. And yet in doing so, he became the very founder of future resurrections. 
He himself having eternal life will give resurrection eternal life to his new creation. Why does the church have any life at all? Well, whatever life it has is because of what Jesus is and what he gives to us. And that life cannot be taken away. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. The one, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. This is the reality for those who are in Christ Jesus. We ourselves will traverse the trail that he himself blazed, coming out on the back end of death into his immediate presence and waiting for his glorious return when we will be raised bodily in the likeness of his resurrection. And what's the divine purpose? Look at verse 18, the very last part. Here's the take-home lesson. So that he might come to have, my Bible says, first place in everything. You know why he died and rose again? You know why he ascended to heaven? You know why he is seated at the right hand of God? It is so that he might have first place in everything. Does he have first place in everything? Because if anything else, everything else is idolatry if it's in first place. And he's to have first place. What's the last two words? In everything. He's saying, listen, there is only one who has to have all of our affections. And it is Jesus. In everything. Does he have first place in our hearts? Does he have first place in our families? Does he have first place in our church? Does he have first place in our work? Does he have first place in our lives? It's one thing to talk about Jesus, and it's another thing to follow him and honor him and give him first place. He must be the preeminent reason, the focus of all that we do. Nothing else compares, nothing else competes, nothing else challenges. He is the Lord of creation, the Lord of the new creation, and he is to have lordship over all my devotion. He is not simply to be placed on a mantle, not simply a figurehead who has no practical effect on your daily life. No, the whole idea of raising him up to first place is not to consign Jesus to a holiday, not to consign him to a Sunday, but he is to be first place every day, in every way, in every place, and in every purpose. Right? We sing, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure, thou art. And now notice, having declared that supremacy over the new creation, he goes to support it again. He demonstrates it in verses 19 and 20, starting with the word for. And he says, two things marked the pleasure of the Father respecting the Son. And the first one is this, God was pleased, and here comes another all, to have all his fullness to dwell in him. There's no emptiness in Christ. Now the question is, what is all the fullness? Some say, and they may be right, that all the fullness he's speaking about here that dwells in Christ is all that fullness of deity mentioned in chapter 2, verse 9, that in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. I don't think that's what Paul means here. Jesus always possessed the fullness of deity. That was not something he possessed by the Father's pleasure. That's something he possessed by his very nature as God himself. 
God the Father did not make Jesus God. Jesus was always God because Jesus is God the Son. Now, it is unique indeed that the fullness of deity comes and dwells in incarnate form, right, in bodily form, and I think that's what Paul's saying in Colossians 2, verse 9. But I think a closer parallel is what we find in John chapter 1. There, the evangelist writes, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. In other words, Jesus Christ is the supreme resource of every saving grace. God made Christ the divine repository of every single spiritual blessing. Here is Christ himself coming in humiliation, coming in submission, and subordinating himself to the Father. And he is full of grace, full of truth, full of mercy, full of righteousness, full of everything that an empty, sinful humanity needs. God said, I'm going to give you a treasury of blessing, and I've been pleased to put all of my fullness in my incarnate Son. You want to know why Christianity is an exclusive message? You want to know why we say there is salvation in no one else? That there is no other name under heaven given to people whereby we must be saved? We say it because of this reality. If all the fullness is in Christ, there is no fullness in anyone or anything else. But in him, we have everything that we need. Romans 10, verse 12 says, He is the Lord of all, who richly blesses all who call upon him. This is the very character of Christ. Perfect fullness, permanent fullness, abundant fullness, never failing, inexhaustible fullness. Don't you love that? Isn't this part of the lesson, right, with regard to the feeding of the 5,000 with the five loaves and the two fish, that indeed there is nothing insufficient in Christ. And that's the reality. Our little souls can drain away any human resource, any kind of natural resource on this earth. We can drain it fast, but we can't drain the resources of Jesus Christ. We can't even tap into the fullness of all that he is toward his people. We can never deplete it or decrease it. It's the fullness of a mediator in whom we find every spiritual blessing. Everything we need that pertains to life and godliness in this age, everything we need until we get to the age to come, is found in him. Whatever is needed to save a fallen world is treasured up, stored up in Jesus. Nothing that we need is lacked in him. What do you lack, dear hearer? I lack faith. Then go to Christ and he will help me in my unbelief. I lack wisdom, then go to Christ. In him are all the treasuries of wisdom. I lack strength, well, Christ has conquered, and he will provide the way of escape. I need comfort, I need compassion. Christ is full of comfort and compassion. I need patience, I need provision. Christ is full of patience and provision. Whatever you need, I direct you to Christ. He ought to have first place because everything we need for God's good pleasure is found in him. But notice what else God was pleased to do. Paul says God was pleased, verse 20, through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God was pleased through him to bring about peace. 
He was pleased through him to bring about a change in relationship between a fallen order and a holy God. Christ will reconcile the whole cosmos to himself. And he's going to do so by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now there's two ways to make peace. You can make peace by force, which is basically to break the arms of your enemies, or you can make peace by grace, restoring your enemies and removing the enmity, the hostility, which sin itself brings. You remember the Pax Romana. There was peace in Rome because of the power of Rome. But there is peace for us because of the cross of Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of of Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself through him. And this is how peace by grace through faith comes to us. For those who bow the knee to Christ now, who recognize that they are the offender and God is the offended, and that there is nothing that they can do to remove their sin, that God himself must act through his Son, who himself becomes the peacemaker, who wraps himself not only in swaddling claws as a baby, but wraps himself in a towel on the cross. And through his grace, through his sacrifice in our place, his substitution for us, instead of us, in place of us, he reconciles us to God. Enmity removed. Relationship restored. But notice he says, All things, from the highest heaven to the lowest earth, there will be comprehensive peace, comprehensive order. You recall that the creation itself, because of sin, is under a curse and subjected to futility. Sin defiled, sin disrupted, sin corrupted more than just our own selves. The creation itself is in bondage and groans for its redemption. And the cross is the beginning of that great cosmic peace. Jesus Christ accomplished it. He began the work as it were. On that Friday in Jerusalem, before a mocking crowd, while the rest of the world was going about its way, on that little hill when the noonday sun went black for three hours and the earth shook, a cosmic reconciliation began to take place and it reverberated heaven and earth. And that was the beginning, a foretaste of the cosmic reconciliation to come. It is also on that cross that he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he triumphed over them as it says in chapter 2, verse 15. And so reconciliation doesn't mean that the devil and the demons and the unrepentant will all be saved. He's not teaching universal salvation, but universal pacification. The universe and all the enemies of Christ, all who stay hardened and turned away from Christ, all who trust in themselves and their own righteousness and need no Savior, all those will be dealt with. And peace will be made. God will put them in their place, everything in order. And so the cross is not only the instrument by which we ourselves are embraced by God's grace, but also of that great cosmic peace to come on the last day. Peace comes by grace, and it comes by subjugation through force. And that's how he will reconcile all things. Total peace is found in Christ. So you must either run to Christ, who alone has all the fullness of grace, and to his cross, or he will run you down and run you over. He is the Lord over all creation. He is the Lord over the new creation. He has provided a way of escape, but also through that cross he has put his stake 
in this fallen world. There will be peace, and it will be Christ ruling over his enemies, their rebellion restrained, and they themselves routed. So you must run to Christ. That's the lesson. You must take this gift. You don't leave it on the porch. You don't leave it in the pew. No, this is something to be received, someone to be received. This is life and peace and pardon and all that our soul needs for eternity. This is the Son in whom is full redemption. This is the one in whom God is pleased to make him the repository, the warehouse of everything that a soul needs for life eternal. There is no life apart from Christ. There is no creation apart from Christ. There is no church apart from Christ. There is no resurrection apart from Christ. There is no reconciliation apart from Christ. There is no peace apart from Christ. Are you apart from Christ this morning? Are you without faith? Are you unbelieving? Are you untrusting? Are you indifferent? Are you just simply letting this day pass by again? Are you just simply experiencing on this Sunday some nice religious feeling among some people? Because the feeling will pass. But if you're not in Christ, his judgment will come upon you. And so I beg you, come to Christ, the Son of God. Embrace this glorious Lord. Embrace the one who says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He will give you true peace. He will reconcile you. He will bring you to himself by the blood of his cross. And not only come to the Son, but trust in the Son, exalt the Son, and give him first place. Friends, this is our Christ. He is supreme over all creation. He is supreme over the new creation. He is the one who holds it all in his hands. And he is the one who gave his life to reconcile it all. And if he can reconcile the cosmos, then he can reconcile you. Will he reconcile you by peace or by power? J.C. Ryle said, no man ever thought too much of Christ. Church, we can never think too much of him. God is pleased that all the fullness of redemption and reconciliation is found in him. And so we ought to think more of him, more than we do. There's nothing like him. There's no one like him. And that's the reason why we worship him and love him and trust him and obey him. What a mercy to follow him, our supreme Lord and all-sufficient Savior. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ, our Redeemer. We thank you that there is no one like him, absolutely unique, the only name under heaven given among men by which any shall be saved, even Jesus Christ, our Lord, our shepherd, our king, our Christ, our fullness, our hope. Thank you for the Savior born. Thank you for the Savior obedient. Thank you for the Savior crucified for sinners. Thank you for the Savior risen, reigning, and ruling over all. Thank you for the Savior who is coming again, when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that you are what we know you to be on this day. Oh, that he may be first place in our lives and in our church. We pray, Lord God, that we might love him more, understand him better, meditate on his high office and his high place, his wonderful authority and power, the life that is found in him, the resurrection that is in him, the church that he is over, which he himself is the blessed and glorious head, the guiding, leading, sustaining, sanctifying, glorifying head. Father, we thank you that he is the reconciler. We thank you that we are a new creation, a new people, belonging to a new citizenship and having the Lord of glory 
over us and for us and in us. Lord, may we be a Christ-honoring, Christ-proclaiming, Christ-trusting, Christ-serving people. In the matchless name of Jesus we pray. Amen.